On this episode of First Lady and Friends, I had such a fun conversation with Julie Castle, a new friend of mine. She is the CEO of Best Friends Animal Society. It's located in Kane County in Kanab. It's a really incredible organization. $130 million national nonprofit. It's won all kinds of awards. It's famous for for a, a lot of reasons, and it's really a, a powerful story that she has. Can't wait for you to take a listen. Let's get proximate. Welcome to this episode of First Lady and Friends. I'm really excited to have a guest that um, we, we're we just getting to know each other. I'm so excited to, to have you meet uh, Julie Castle. She's the CEO of Best Friends Animal Society, a leading national animal animal welfare organization based in Kanab. Um, she, I was reading this and I'm, I'm just, I'm going to keep reading because Julie, I think this is phenomenal. And I knew a little bit about your organization and, and I'll talk a little bit about why in a minute, because I think most people know, <laughs> have the same reason they know you, but it said you from becoming the organization's 17th employee after graduating from SUU, she is now the CEO and has grown best friends into get this a $130 million national nonprofit in 2021. Best Friends was recognized by Fast Company Magazine as one of the top 10 innovative companies in data science. Best Friends is also frequently highlighted by the Harris Poll as the animal welfare nonprofit brand of the year. I mean, come on. This is amazing. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Julie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're we're really excited. I'm like I said, I'm super excited to get to know you and, and more and and about this organization. So, um, first of all, before we dive into that, let's just talk about you. We we were talking a little bit off air before we got on, but talk a little bit about yourself and where you grew up, a little bit about your family and your background. So I grew up in Bountiful, Utah, and I went to Viewmont High School, and I had five. I was the youngest of seven. Wow. I had five older brothers and an older sister, and we were kind of that family that was the epicenter of the neighborhood. You know, everyone, every neighborhood has one of those where all the kids congregate around that house. That was our house. It was a really, really fun childhood. Awesome. Um, Had a mom and dad by the time I came along who were like, you know... I think they were done. So I had a very unstructured childhood, but it was a blast. Mm. I was, I was, there's a, a comedian that we love, uh, Nate Bargetzi, and he talks, he has a bit about how the young, his youngest sister is, was being raised by her best friends. It's like, that was not my experience. That was my, that was my experience. It was, it's a, I think it's a great parenting guide. So, um, and it was, a, a, you know, I think my family was, we remained very close. Um, I think it was just the right amount of parenting. I'm, I'm joking a bit, but at the end of the day, I think it was one of those eras that was kind of a different time. Yeah. Now I'm dating myself, but, (laughs) you know, where you saw a lot of kids outside and, you know, you spent a lot of time with your neighbors and not a lot of time indoors. And 
it was one of those, uh, I think it was sort of the last era of that, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I think I grew up mostly that way, too. I mean, I grew up on a ranch, so I, you know, we were, if we were inside, we were put to work. If we, we tried to stay out of earshot, eyeshot of mom because. <laughs> you knew you'd have it sure. <laughs> have something to do. Exactly. If she got, you never, never said you were bored because that was, <laughs> that was a death sentence. Yeah. No, I mean, it was the same in my house. So we mostly disappeared or, you know, there'd be times that I'd come home from school and um, there would be not a person in my family in our house, but there would be 30 or 40 neighbor kids (laughs) hanging out in our basement because we had a pretty cool kitted out basement Mm -hmm. and they'd be eating out of the fridge drinking out of the jug of milk, you know, one of those kind of childhoods. So not a parent to be found, but it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Mm, I love that. So then you headed to SUU? Yeah, so I graduated from Viewmont, and um, I ended up choosing Southern Utah University because uh, for a lot of different reasons. One, I had a couple of dear friends, um, who decided to go there, Sharwan Smith and Stacy Smith. And we were like, let's go to SUU together. And they had um, friends and family members who had gone. And I took a visit there and absolutely fell in love with Southern Utah, the canyons, the mountains, the scenery. And I thought, wow, this place is incredible. I was a little bit worried about the size because it was so small. Yeah. Um, It's since grown, but it was a remarkable experience. It changed my life, I think. Yeah. You know, I was, um, you know, I went to Snow College and of course I grew up in a small town, so it, it didn't, it didn't phase me in the least. It was, you know, big, big town to go to eat from, from, from Mount Pleasant. But, um, what I noticed is like we had to make our own fun mm-hmm. and we all grew up doing that. But, but I, I noticed that the, the folks from, you know, from the Wasatch front had a little harder time knowing how to do that, but, but you learn. It's so, it, it's true. So most of the kids that I went to college with were from Fairview yeah. and Farron and Loa and Bicknell and towns you'd never heard of, yep. but they were resourceful and, there's something about rural Utah, I think, that um, <clears throat> is the the makings of an entrepreneur. And you can, you know, I always say if the end of the world is coming, if you grow up in southern Utah, you'll be the one that survives because you yeah. know how to start a fire. <laughs> and, you know, so so it was that kind of environment. Zion National Park was just down the road. Bryce Canyon wasn't far so it was this wonderland of outdoor just bliss. And I, so I fell in love with Southern Utah at that point in time. Oh, I love that. So after SUU, then, then what? Well, I think, so I, I spent, in college, I, I had the opportunity to do a lot of different things. And like Snow College, you know, when you go to a smaller campus, you're exposed to so many things. And one of the things that I did was I had an internship in D.C. with the Senate Republican Conference, and then I had another internship with Orrin Hatch. And it exposed me to D.C., and I fell in love with D.C. Yeah. You know, I was meeting 
these senators every day. My daily beat was the White House press room. We were basically a, a, a PR bureau for all the Republican senators. And okay. so um, I thought, you know, this is this I am definitely going to law school and I'm definitely getting involved in politics. And so I was on that path and I uh, studied really hard. Um, I wasn't a naturally gifted student, but I had, I had to work for stuff. So we had this incredible science professor who um, sat down and went through the LSAT with me. And we studied for about six months and I ended up um, going from an average score to, to like an off the chart score. Wow. And so I was able to get into uh, the number two law school in the country, University of Virginia. And I was so excited. And so was my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my friends and I said, well, look, we've got, you know, a couple months before life starts. We graduated. We said, let's go to Mexico and just hang out. So we drove my 1979 Dodge Colt down there, and every panel was a different color because I'd been in so many accidents. (laughs) We got to Puerto Vallarta, and we hung out, woke up one morning and realized we were out of money. And we were like, damn, I'm sorry. (laughs) uh, We've got to get home. We had just enough money for gas and a candy bar each, and we drove straight through. And one friend that I was with uh, begged us to stop at this animal sanctuary in Kanab. Mm. And we were all mad at each other. We were fighting. It was hot. We had no air conditioning. And we were like, we are not stopping in Kanab. Like, what's in Kanab, Utah? And so finally we gave in and said, okay, we'll stop. And we pulled into this magnificent Red Rock Canyon that was so incredibly breathtaking. And then I got to meet the founders of Best Friends Animal Sanctuary and hear about their no-kill ethic. And um, I remember pulling out of the sanctuary and saying to my friends, I'm not going to law school. I'm going to move to Kanab and work here. Wow. And I pulled into the gas station, picked up the payphone, dropped a couple of quarters in, called my dad and said, hey, I'm not going to law school. I'm going to move to Kanab and work at this sanctuary. Wow. And it was like... How this, was that conversation? <laughs> it was awesome. Oh, good. <laughs> and no, it was terrible. <laughs> He was so he was so pissed off. And he my dad was a little he was a little bit like he was a serial entrepreneur. Really great at finance. He was an economist, a little bit like Mitt Romney. Okay. Had a ton of charisma, you know, just sort of was had his fingers in a lot of different businesses. And I don't think he ever forgave me. He was like, what are you doing? And I think there was this like family intervention at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Like, you're wasting your life. Are you okay? You're having a midlife crisis. Maybe I was. At but 20 or whatever. I was, yeah. <laughs> whatever old you're. 20, 23, 24. Um, 
And then I think they just came to the realization that this was a real thing that I was committed to. Wow. Wow. So you started then and and you started you just did you make it home? Did you? (laughs) I made I funny enough, the poor my poor colt died on the (laughs) Highway 20 between Panguitch and Beaver. Yeah. And we had we had the summer ride. Real? Oh my gosh, this story gets better. And these high school kids rope towed us back to that Beaver Chevron. Mm-hmm. Um, and I called my mom this time and said, "Hey, we're broken down. Can you get us?" So she drove down and picked us up, and that I figured out my life and then made it back to Canab. Wow. So have you been there ever since? So I have been there ever since. I was in. Wow. I was. Uh, you know, I had to apply. And back then, you know, it was a hand-to-mouth operation. Yeah. It was, we were really poor. We really, really struggled. And I remember calling and saying, how do I apply for a job? And they were like, uh, well, uh, <laughs> send us your resume and send it to this person. Her name was Celeste Fripp. Okay. And I sent her my resume and I never heard back from her. And I'm like, well, I guess you know, I wasn't good enough. So I called again and I said, hey, I'm really interested. Can I come down and volunteer? And they were like, oh, yeah, we we forgot about your resume. <laughs> we were so busy. <laughs> we were busy. And they were like, come on down and volunteer. And um, I volunteered for a bit. And they were like, look, we're really cash strapped right now. And so uh, we can't hire you right this second, but give us a couple of months. So I went and kind of got some a few scab jobs okay. until I could make my way back there. But um, and then my family really started thinking, like, what is she doing? <laughs> and so, so I was in Denver, kind of taking this like part time job as a marketing person, mm-hmm. and I moved to Canab on July fourth, mm-hmm. and never never looked back. Wow. That's that's absolutely incredible. What a story. Um, I want to continue on this and, and talk more about um, your journey. This is just fascinating. We'll do that when we come right back. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. We're here with Julie Castle from Best Friends Animal Society. We are, I, I'm just fascinated by your story. So we want to keep going. We want to keep learning about your story. So, so you, you started there. You finally there um, after, after this crazy trip. Um, and then, and then, and then what? So I, so I show up at Best Friends and it was all hands on deck. It was, you know, I was employee 17. There were no job descriptions or you showed up. I would show up every morning and get my assignments. And it essentially was a working ranch yeah. at the time. And so you, if you've grown up in that kind of setting, you know that, one day you could be changing a radiator on a truck. The next day you're fixing a fence in a field. One day you're giving a tour to a visitor or helping out at Dogtown, which is where we have our, our dogs, our dog population, or Cat World, whatever it took to keep the lights on. We were so poor that we had to resort to what we called tabling, yeah. where we would go and sit in front of grocery stores and Salt Lake City, Los Angeles, Phoenix, you know, the West, big Western cities. And we would sit there with a, a, a picture board of the sanctuary and our animals. 
and we would ask for donations. And we had a donation jar, and we'd ask for people's name and email address. And, well, there wasn't email back then, so mailing list. (laughs) And we would uh, take the money at the end of the evening, and these were long, hard days, like 14-hour days. We'd count the money at night, deposit it in the bank, um, in the night deposit, fax these lists of names back to Utah. And from there, our uh, one-person crew who did our database would input the names, and we would immediately send our members a, a thank you note, and then we would call them and thank them. And we still have people today that come to the sanctuary who say, I met one of the founders at a table in Gelson's supermarket in Beverly Hills or wherever it was. And they are still there and they're still with us. And um, we were blessed to have 25 founders and a really committed group of initial employees that sort of understood what grit was, that, you know, this was a mission worth fighting for. This was something that was bigger than all of us. And it was a a game-changing thing. It it could change the world. Like, this isn't something that I often say, look, this is a cause that we're involved with that actually has a solution. You know, there are so many great causes out there, but so many don't have a cure. They don't have a solution. Um, they're, they're just pushing the boulder up the hill, yeah. which is hard. But we know how to get this done. We know how to end the unnecessary dying of animals in America's shelter, shelter system. And I think, what a gift. Mm. What a great thing to have in your life, to be able to say, I'm a part of something where I actually did something really meaningful. I love it that. changed the world. I love that. So did you always, I mean, you, you talked about having a lot of kids, but did you have animals? Is it something, did you, were, was it a part of you? Did you already have this sort of love for animals? You, you must have if you, you connected with them on, on, on first sight. So I, I grew up with always a lot of animals. Mm-hmm. My mom was from San Francisco, she was a, we would have been fifth generation Californians, mm. but she met my dad at UC Berkeley. He was in the Air Force and was part of the GI Bill. And um, so they moved to Salt Lake, to Bountiful. And we, uh, she grew up with a father who had a ranch on the Russian River. So she was always really into animals, but we always had dogs and cats and a menagerie of pets was always with all the children with all the children they was all mixed in together and then in college of course i uh went to the local shelter and adopted a pet um actually a couple of cats and i wasn't allowed to have them in my apartment but i i did anyway (laughs) but that was that was my first experience with um animal sheltering Mm. and it was it was a game changer. It was harrowing. Mm. It was very sad. Yeah. yeah. Very sad. So I know about your organization because it was it was made very public, which 
I'm assuming was a really good thing for you guys, um, for for the business model and for everything that you do to to help make make everything happen. Again, as a nonprofit, it's it's a tough world out there to to be able to do that. But um, maybe talk a little bit about Mike Vick, <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and maybe for those that don't know the story and and how that came about. Yeah, so we had um, we were just coming off the heels of Katrina. And that's really where we entered the national stage. Okay, We've okay. been building gotcha. up until that point. Yep. Um, and we were, we basically had defined ourselves as the leaders of the no-kill movement. Okay. And the founders really started the no-kill movement. They didn't set apart themselves to say, hey, we're going to buy this canyon in southern Utah and start this thing called the no-kill movement. They bought this piece of property in southern Utah to take care of animals. But basically, what they asked themselves was, it was a simple question. Why in this country, the wealthiest country in the world, are we killing 17 million animals every single year in our government shelter systems? Why aren't we talking about how to best save them? And that was the premise of the sanctuary. So it was basically... Let's bring these animals in, get them back to health, and find them good homes. And so Katrina kind of launched us onto the national stage. And then from Katrina, we we had uh, been approached by National Geographic for a, na- a national TV series. So now with Katrina, so you all those animals that were abandoned, so they were then brought to to Knapp. Is well, that the, wh- we, how did the how did Katrina play a part? So we actually sent uh, a huge portion of our staff to Katrina oh, okay. as part of the rescue effort. And we actually ended up helping about 6,000 animals. Wow. And we set up a, a sanctuary, sort of a makeshift sanctuary in Louisiana um, in a place called Tylertown, just right outside New Orleans. And we stayed there for about 12 months. And the thing that was different about Katrina is that people were separated from their pets. And so we were hanging on to these animals to, to reunite them with their owners. And we ended up reuniting literally about 6,000 animals. Wow. And those animals would have been basically killed because no one knew who they belonged to, all the shelters were at capacity. And that was really rewarding and put us on the map. And so we met, we actually met some producers from National Geographic while we were there. Oh, okay. And they hatched the idea of a television series. And so we ended up with this TV show Mm. um, that was really popular and it ran for about five seasons called Dogtown. And it was all about the sanctuary. And so, you know, then our identity grew even more, and then the Michael Vick situation happened. And that was the, uh, Michael Vick was the star of the show in the, the NFL. Yeah. He was the quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles, um, had incredible stats, like was, had had this meteoric rise, and got busted one day for having this terrible dogfighting ring. Yep. And the conditions that he had these poor dogs in 
you know, I, I won't go into the gruesome details, but some of our staff witnessed them up, up close and personal. And, you know, from electric shock to blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Your imagination cannot make up the terrible things that this guy did, did to these dogs. He would fight them and they would bet on who would win. So when this um, ring was busted up, the typical thing that happened was animals were basically, any animal in a fight ring is immediately euthanized because they have been considered irredeemable, too damaged, too vicious, too mean. And it just so happened in this case, every other national organization was saying, yep, you should probably just kill them because they've been through so much trauma, they're not going to recover. Um, and fortunately, the woman who was appointed by the FBI to be the grand master of the case said, look, I think before we do anything with these dogs, we should have Best Friends Animal Society come out and evaluate them. And she did, or they agreed to that, and we did. And we, uh, there were only a few dogs that were irredeemable, irredeemably gone. And there were about 48 dogs. We took 22 of, of the dogs that needed the most help. And the others went to rescue groups all over the country. I'm telling you, these dogs were incredible. So resilient. Every single one of these dogs, but a handful got adopted into homes where some of them ended up being service animals in hospitals. No kidding. Like they were incredible. They're so resilient, so loyal. And the thing about them is they're not, uh, they were the victims in this case. They weren't vicious. They were just terrified. Yeah. And so our team of staff took these dogs and like really rehabilitated them Mm -hmm. and, and brought them back to health. And it was just a, a cool landmark moment for not just that breed of dog, but saying to the the world, like, wait a second, we need to treat animals as in a case-by-case basis. We can't just say they were tortured here in this situation, so let's just do away with them. Yeah. So it really changed a lot for the organization and our standing in animal welfare. So where does your, where does, and because of that, because of these high profile cases and and stories and National Geographic in the show, is that where you you get your funding and you you can get, I mean, because to grow it to $130 million nonprofit, that's crazy. Yeah. And I just, from begging on the streets of Beverly Hills. and, And we often joke internally because we are still, gratefully blessed with about a dozen founders who are still with us and and they're getting older but the stories they have are so much fun we often talk about how we're like the the muppets take manhattan you know (laughs) we really like there's so many cool fun stories about the early days like uh you know we decided we were at risk for potentially having a fire. Mm. This is like the year before I got there. So think, you know, 
17 employees. I was employee 17. No one, none of the founders were getting paid yet. My first paycheck was 183 bucks. Wow. Um, we bought this old fire truck from Brian Head Ski Resort from the town and thought, okay, we went through all these drills, you know, had the gear and thought, we're all prepared for a fire. Well, sure enough, a fire struck one of the juniper trees at the sanctuary and the thing started on fire. And so the founders back then were like, okay, fire, there's a fire. They got in the fire truck, started driving toward the tree and the the truck caught on fire. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of the makeshift. So you think about like, we started at $800,000. That's when I arrived. It was a $800,000 organization. And from that to go to this year, we're probably going to be $160 million. Wow. And this is all from private donations, all from the general public. Mm. Amazing. And, I, you know, it's, I think it's more of a display of what you were saying in the pre-show, which is people respond to love. Mm. And our brand and messaging is all positive. Yeah. It's we're not um, an organization that's going to get into, you know, showing those gruesome animal photos. We're not an animal rights organization. We are an animal welfare organization that basically wants to save dogs and cats mm. in America's shelters. That's that's incredible. Absolutely, such a cool story. Um, and the whole organization has an amazing story. Um, I want to get into maybe what's next um, for the organization when we come right back. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. Uh, Julie Castle, we have had such a great experience talking to you. Um, this has just been intriguing. Um, I love your story, but let's talk about what's what's in the works, what what comes next um, for, for the organization and 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 for the animals. I, I, I've noticed, and maybe maybe you've seen this trend or maybe I'm just making this up because, you know, <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. But I, I, it seems like there's this trend of getting away from sort of the designer designer animals and the, and the things that go on there and really, uh, I mean, I see a ton of people that are adopting animals from shelters and different places. Um, have you seen that trend? Is that is that a real thing? And and is that helped with what you guys are doing? Yeah, I mean, so just some top line numbers. So when when I started in this in this field, seventeen million animals were dying every year, and today that's about three hundred and eighty thousand, which is still too many. But we have made tremendous progress. Um, we are, you know, Utah is on the verge of becoming a no kill state. Every single shelter, and we've got fifty six shelters in Utah. There are about th- we're, we're still unnecessarily killing about 300 animals, but 300. And when I started, it was like, I don't know, 60,000. Wow. So we've made a lot of progress. And did you, did you work on that bill that last session around the one with, I'm terrible. I don't remember the bill numbers or anything, but um, I think Catherine Heigl helped work on it with Mike, Senator Mike McKell. Anyway, there was a bill on a no kill. There was a no kill bill that they, Uh, that they ran. Oh, uh, the gas chamber. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Marlon knows more about. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I just oh, good, good. I'm, I'm glad. Uh, anyway, so yeah, but, it, but to think about, yeah. you know, just thinking about the how it's become a mainstream yeah. term, no kill, you know, and where it's not a scary term, and but our whole point right now is by 2025, we want every shelter in every community to be saving 90% of the animals that enter their shelter system. Mm-hmm. And additionally, it's re- education is really important to us. And we have a partnership right now with SUU that is groundbreaking because this has been a field that's been, there's no real, you don't really need to go to college for it. Right. There's no education to become a shelter you know, administrator or worker. There's no career path. And um, to me, the coolest thing is we are really wanting to, to design that career path because at the end of the day, public administration wasn't a thing 50 years ago. Yep. And you think about running governments, running cities, municipalities, there was no roadmap for that. And so for animal welfare and animal control we're creating that with with southern utah university and it's a really innovative idea and really cool initiative that we have going um and so the the organization is always evolving we're always wanting to be um sort of in that space of innovation and you'd mentioned fast company and data science and this was a field that wasn't measuring anything. Yeah. There was no data on how what was happening with these animals in any part of the country. And so we set out to pull together. Uh, we basically went to every community in the country mm-hmm. to source this data and created this data map um, that you can check out on our website where anybody in any community can hop on the website and find out exactly what's going on in their community in their local animal shelter. And that's revolutionary. And I think about that like, hey, people, we're in like 2021 <laughs> and, we, I, and we don't have this data for such an important field. Like, yeah. what is going on here? And so those are the kind of things that we're always going to be pushing the envelope on. We are not always popular in the industry for that kind of thing um, because we are a bit disruptive and uh, we're, we're, and that is, that is the advice I would give to any listener is it's okay to be disruptive and disliked. <laughs> it is. Yeah. The yep. people who are going to like you, that you will find out who your friends are. Yeah. And those are the people that you should be associating with because those are the people that are going to make you a better person. Mm, I love that. I love that. You are also, again, you're the, I think I read, you're the top employer in Kane County, right? Top employer in Kane County. We have about 400 employees. That seems small to a lot of people, but (laughs) really in a county, that is huge. I mean, like in San Pete County, I think our biggest employer is the the turkey processing plant. I mean, it, and I don't know how many employees, but the, these small communities, these these um, employers are critical. So you've become 
this hub and this critical hub for for economic development in in the county as well, right? We have, and it's been very it, it's been very rewarding. And to think about the fact that um, a lot of those employees are local, because we we don't just when you think about our organization, we're almost like a mini city. The sanctuary is located on about 8,000 acres. Wow. We have an additional 33,000 acres of grazing rights. It's a very big place, and so it's a big plant operation. Mm -hmm. And so we have maintenance people. We've got IT folks, you know. uh, We have a kitchen where we host a, a daily lunch for our visitors. You can volunteer. You can visit. Um, we have cabins on the property that you can stay at, guided hikes, all sorts of cool stuff. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of those employees are locals. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's fun to, to provide that for rural Utah because, as you know, yeah. economic development in rural Utah is a, a challenging um, – it's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's been cool for us. And we just opened our – uh, the Roadhouse Hotel Motel, which went just won Best of State. Oh, fantastic! Um, and we need to come stay. <laughs> oh, it's so cool! It's such a cool place. We renovated an old motel, okay, um, and made it the most pet friendly motel in the world. And um, it it's uh, so you can stay there. It's a lot of fun. The mm. idea is the animals come first, mm. so there are pet beds and. <laughs> pet showers and oh, yeah it's very very cool oh that's amazing well i i just am i'm just in awe of of what you've done and 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 just your organization and just you you you've been this has just been such a delightful conversation what i guess as as we wrap up here um what do you want people to know about it um other than what we've talked about what else is there you know what have we missed and um you know how can people get involved I think the biggest thing is, um, as you think about getting a pet, adopt a pet from a shelter. They are the best animals. They know they've been rescued, and at the end of the day, they end up rescuing you. Mm. And and that is the biggest thing you can do. You can volunteer at your local shelter as well, or give a donation to your local rescue group, because um, they all need it, and they're all doing—this is a— this is a very noble cause. Yeah, I agree. Um, one more thing. Sorry, I, sa- I said we were going to wrap up, but I want to say one more thing. Um, we uh, you, in the breaks, we've been talking a little bit about youth and mental health and and the things that are going on with our with our young people. Maybe just touch just before we before we end here about you know maybe the links between um, mental health and and our and our animals. Oh, it's so. There is so much science backing this that animals, whatever animal you have, guinea pig, horse, cat, dog, um, there is so much science to back up the fact that having that in your life, that unconditional love, the fact that you have a terrible day and you show up at home and this animal races up to meet you. And it doesn't care what you look like. It doesn't care what color you are. It doesn't care what kind of day you've had. It just wants to love you. And there is real power in that. And 
I think that is the, it's a gift that we've been given if we allow ourselves to receive the love of an animal. The mental health benefits are off the charts. And I would say if you're a parent, it is singularly one of the best things you could do is to get your your child an animal for that reason alone. So it's very powerful. Yeah, I agree. Of course, for me, I had animals all growing up. We lived on a farm, so we, you know, the animals were part of our livelihood, but, um, you know, he had dogs, and I had an Irish setter who was, who was just great, and he was, he was really fun, but, um, but I had a, I had horses, and to me, that's where my, there's so many lessons I learned on a horse, um, I was, I was researching cause I'm, I'm really into like trying to figure out how I can justify, um, getting a horse, but <laughs> I'm really into like figuring out the, the health benefits of having a horse. And I was reading an article about how, uh, sometimes a horse, your heartbeat and your horse's heartbeat get on the same rhythm. Yeah. And I was, I was reading about this and I'm like, of course, that's why I am so connected to horses. Yes, it's so true. Uh, anyway, I just love it. So, yeah. so thank you again um, for all, for, for what you're doing and, and for coming on the show and, and helping us to understand this important issue. Oh, it's been so much fun and I'm, I'm grateful to you and, and this podcast and, your elevated message of love and belonging so important oh thank you thank you we appreciate it and 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 we'll we'll put out the information make sure people know how to get in touch with you thanks awesome thank you listeners i just wanted to give you a little uh, heads up that we are going to be um off air for for a little while i'm actually going to be traveling out of the country uh spencer and i are going on a trade mission and we're doing a, a lot of traveling for nga and so we'll be gone for the next few weeks um just wanted to let you know and we'll be back after after that with some more incredible guests keep listening and we uh, give a shout out to all the other KSL podcasts that you can tune into and uh, we'll see you in a little while